Uh, let's turn in our Bibles, uh, not to Isaiah, but to Leviticus, as we uh, try to introduce um, what Isaiah is going to talk about to us today. And, and we're going to take a little detour on our way to Isaiah by stopping in the book of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus, as you know, is a book that is all about the holiness of God. And, and I don't know, have you read Leviticus recently in your Bible reading plan? Anybody read Leviticus this year, maybe? Um, going in, you guys doing the chronological Bible reading, doing any of that? Do you skip Leviticus? It's okay, we all, we've all done that at one time, I think. But, um, but, but here's, here's, why, here's why you don't want to skip Leviticus. The, the, the danger of reading Leviticus and thinking this is about the holiness of God and I should care about the holiness of God is we can reduce the holiness of God to a whole bunch of rules that don't seem to be applicable to anything that we care about. I mean, can we just be honest about this? When you open Leviticus and you read about, you know, you can eat this and you can't eat that, and if you do this, you've got to go through this procedure, and, you know, if your neighbor has a property line, and here's how you can handle it, and, and you, know, uh, you know, if this happens in your community, here, and, and you read that and you feel like you're, you're reading the local civil code, because you are. <laughs> That's what it is. You're, you're reading, like if we were to go down to uh, the Hood County Courthouse and someone there, they have some uh, laws on the books and we were to just dive into that. And uh, that, that's what you're reading. You're reading the civil code of Israel. And if you're not careful, we might walk away thinking that holiness is about this intricate sort of rule keeping regarding things that nobody really cares about and probably nobody really follows in near as much detail as God gets excited about in the Bible. You been there? Okay, be honest. Come on, be honest. So that's why we need to think about the broader context of Leviticus because those rules are not holiness in and of itself. Those rules are illustrating what holiness means. And that's why there's somewhat of a disconnect, okay? What those rules are designed to help us to see well, let me just ask you, you guys are advanced Bible students, what are all those rules designed to help us to see? That we can't keep them. Okay, that's true. That's right. That's part of what the law is designed to do, is, is to slay us in terms of our own inability to keep the law, right? What else are they designed to do? Yeah, to point us to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ who was able to keep all the rules. Okay, that's good. Okay, we got the, the two uses of the law. What's the third use of the law? What's that? It is a guide for holy living, and really that, that's, a, that's a conclusion of the main premise which says our God is a particular God. Okay? Now, uh, we, we got our, our pilots in training back there. Uh, now, one day, the, these gentlemen are going to be airline pilots, and you're going you're gonna to get on an airplane. And do you like a pilot who is sort of a, a generalist kind of... You know, we're just going to kind of see how it goes and make it work and hope everything all works out. Or do you want a particular pilot that knows what he's doing and has the guidelines and understands the systems and flies the plane accordingly? What kind of pilot do you want? The particular one. That's right. No one wants a, 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 a generalist surgeon, right? You know, the, the, you guys have seen the commercial where the guy walks in. Who's your doctor, right? And, oh, it's Dr. So-and-so. And he comes in. Oh, I just got reinstated by the boards. <laughs> and you go, huh. He says, uh, well, doctor, are you going to talk about this? Uh, no, no, we'll figure it out in the OR. Let's go. Right? You don't want that kind of surgeon. You want a particular 
surgeon that knows what he or she is doing and will act and, and do surgery accordingly. And, and, and that's a, an echo, in a sense, of the reality that God is a particular God and he makes us to not be general in our reflection of his nature, but to be particular in our reflection of his nature, if that makes sense. God has called each of us as image bearers to reflect him, not in general ways, but in specific ways. And what that means is the vision of Leviticus is, who is this God and what is he like? He's holy. He, he's separate. He's awesome. He's particular. And, and in uh, flip over to chapter 10, if you're not there, uh, Leviticus chapter 10. I want to show you, um, you're familiar with this story. Uh, uh, this, this is sort of the, it's the high point and low point of the book of Leviticus. It, it demonstrates holiness in the most profound way but it is a tragic way also okay now it's graduation season how many have been to a graduation in the last month any sort of graduation okay and you know how graduation is you got your balloons and your poster and your air horns although they banned a lot of those right and and you're excited and little johnny or little susie has graduated from high school or kindergarten or college or medical school or whatever they're doing and you are a proud parent right and you're just you're just all excited that your child or your nephew or cousin or whoever it is has achieved this great feat well this is the day in leviticus 10 where the high priest of israel the chosen person to be as it were the mediator between god and the people his name was aaron that his two boys had been priests in training. This is likely their first day on the job because it's the first time we hear about their involvement in the sacrificial system. Okay? So you can imagine the proud dad emotion that's going on as Aaron calls his two boys, Nadab and Abihu, to enter the tabernacle and to offer sacrifices in their priestly duties. Okay? So let's pick up the narrative in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. Uh, those would have been, um, uh, they would kind of look somewhat like a skillet, but they were used for bringing incense and uh, other uh, sacrifices into the tabernacle. They took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered... My Bible says strange fire before the Lord. What, what does your version say? Strange fire? What's that? Unauthorized? Profane? Okay. So the, what, what the translator trying to get at was this was not something God told them to do. If, it, if you will, they brought an improper creativity to worship. Now, that's a whole sermon series right there, but we'll resist that, okay? And we don't have to guess about what the strange fire is. I mean, a lot of times people are, well, what was it? And what did they do? The only thing you need to know is this. They offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. That's the only thing you need to know, right? It was unauthorized because God had not commanded them to do it. Can you imagine Aaron? 
and he's just sent his two boys into the tabernacle. Their training is complete. Their, their internship has come to a close, and now they're, they're full-fledged priests. He sends them in to the tabernacle. Whether he knew about what they were about to do or not is uncertain. I would think probably not. And as his boys go into the tabernacle, his emotions are high. Verse 2. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and that probably would have been behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. Fire came out through that curtain into the holy place where the altar of incense resides. Came out from the presence of the Lord and it consumed them and they died. Notice this. Before the Lord. What do you do? I think some of you have actually lost children. Um, they've preceded you in death. And that's painful. Can you imagine seeing your two grown sons divinely executed on the spot on their first day of religious service because they didn't do it right? Listen to what Moses says to Aaron as the explanation. What are we to make of all this? Because for all of us that are parents in the room, there's just pain if those were our kids. Listen to what Moses says to Aaron, verse 3. It is what the Lord spoke. Moses says, this is exactly what God warned us about. No hugs, no sympathetic embrace, no encouraging words, no empathy. Not that those things would have been inappropriate, but that's not the point. He says, this is what God has been talking to us about for months. Well, what's that? By those who come near me, I will be treated as... What's the word? What does that mean? Special. Set apart. Sinless. What does Moses mean by that? To those who come near me, I shall be treated as unique, set apart, other, pure. What, what does he mean? The context was what they did. Yeah. What they did was a practice of pagan worship. Right. And, and why... 
That's right. And why was... So here's the question. You're absolutely right. So, so everyone, why is departing from a process that God did not prescribe... Why is departing from the process that God did prescribe a violation of His holiness? Right. God never changes. Okay. He's a particular God. They didn't listen to Him. What they did showed what was in their heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, what they did was a reflection. Yeah, that's good. You know, our outward acts are indicative of what we really believe about God in the heart, right? You're absolutely right. So we're thinking, it's their first day on the job. You remember what the first day of kindergarten was like? You remember that, right? You remember what the first day your your son had a real job or your daughter had a real... You remember what that's like? And we go, where is the compassion of God? Yeah, yeah, this isn't the first time they've had the discussion, is it? That's right. This is, this is years and years in the process. It is. Okay. So here's what I want you to see. Look at, look at his response again, okay? You've got to get this because we, and I'm not, when I say we, I mean the, those of us in this room right now, in this time, in this generation, we, we do not understand and feel the weight of holiness like we ought to feel it. And, and narratives like this can help move us in the right direction. Moses says to Aaron, it is what the Lord has spoke, right? This is what we've been talking about for decades. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Yeah, and that's a good point. Yeah, we, we, we don't have a narrative on, on the actual motivation of their heart. But I think as important as that is, the greater principle is this. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, even though we're curious, we want to know that, right? Because when we treat God as not holy, whatever our motive it is it is an act of incredible violation against the character and nature of God. Oh yeah, yeah they 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 likely knew better. Um, now watch this. So Aaron, notice it, it doesn't say Aaron the high priest. It just says Aaron. Um, Maybe Moses, who's recording this, is trying to emphasize this is a this is a parental moment in Aaron's life, not a high priestly moment in his life. Therefore, Aaron kept silent, and Moses called to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, "Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to outside the camp." So they came forward and carried them, still in their tunics, to the outside of the camp, 
as Moses had said. And uh, they go on to talk about what's going to happen next. So, um, Holiness is a subject that we desperately need to grow in. And when the contemporary Christian culture says, you can come to God on your own terms because sincerity and authenticity is the only qualification. Tell that to Nadab and Abihu. Tell that to Aaron. Tell that to Uzzah, who reached out and tried to grab the ark when it was falling off the cart. Um, that's not the criteria. The, the, the impression of God's holiness upon our lives is the fundamental motivation in our walk before Him. It has to be. Because that's who God is. So with that in mind, uh, turn back to Isaiah chapter 6 and let's, uh, let's parachute back into where we left off. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. They were to be the examples to all the people. Yeah. And what they did, the people might think, well, they did it, got away with it. I, right. I it. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it means. And, and it's not just that they were an example of the people, although that's certainly true. It's that as the, as the priests, they were functioning representatively, collectively for the whole people before God. So you're absolutely right. And that, that may be why this is maybe more severe than some of the other violations of the people, um, but nonetheless communicates the point. Uh, Gail, do you have a question? Um, when, you talk, when you talk about this, it makes me realize how precious the blood of Christ is for our people. Yeah, I think what, what Jack and Irene said about you know, the law shows us our inability, it shows us our need for a savior. And that, that's, that's part of all of this, certainly. I mean, even, we understand, even in Christ, we don't walk in holiness perfectly, right? Is that a newsflash for anybody? Even in Christ, we don't walk in holiness perfectly. So, uh, in, in fact, quite pathetically, if we're being honest. I mean, progressively, but nonetheless pathetically sometimes. So, um, that, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And it's Christ's finished work that ensures uh, that this sort of, um, wrath is demonstrated will not fall on us. So, yeah, do you have another point? Well, applicable today, do we not see church leaders try to redefine the holy word of God? Yeah. It's in the realm of homosexuality. Right, we yeah. We see church leaders saying, well, it doesn't really apply to us today. It doesn't make sense. They're, right. they're, maybe they're trying to do the right thing to reach out to people, but in essence, they're defining the word right. of God. No, that's a good point. I, I think if, if we could make a connection between what CC said and what you're saying in terms of, you know, there is a, a higher level of accountability for leaders um, so that when, when Christian leaders are accommodating sin rather than calling it out and, and they're, they're, um, it, whether it's homosexuality or a thousand other things, you're absolutely right. There, there is a greater level of accountability there. And I think we get a picture of what God thinks about that in this story, so... Okay, so Isaiah chapter 6, uh, this, this is the chapter, guys. This is the chapter that we all know and, and uh, appreciate. 
Um, we recalled last time many different occasions where people in Scripture, in a sense, got to quote-unquote see God or see uh, what we call a theophany. Uh, a theophany is when the invisible God, who is spirit, takes on some sort of visual representation so that we can see or hear with our senses. Um, so Jacob in Genesis 28, uh, Ezekiel in uh, the first couple of chapters of his book, Daniel in Daniel 7, Peter, James, and John, the Transfiguration. We noted some other examples of that. So what we're about to listen to and hear is really a very rare moment in Scripture. This doesn't happen every day. Um, I, I think sometimes in, in contemporary Christianity today, we think that encounters with the living God that are um, audible, visual sort of representation should be the ordinary way we, we relate to God. But uh, not only is that not true today, it wasn't even true in the Bible. That this sort of thing was rare, uh, though it did happen on occasion. So Isaiah tells us uh, that this happened in the year of King Uzziah's death. We, we know that. That was 739 B.C. We know that from history. After 52 years as king, he died from leprosy. And we can cross-reference that with Second Chronicles that gives sort of the history uh, behind that. We also know, it says here, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And at this point, he doesn't use the personal name of God. He uses a more general term, Lord, to emphasize his majesty, to emphasize his role as the ruler, as the Lord, as the master of all creation. Uh, the text tells us he sees the Lord sitting on a throne. So this is a theophany, right? He's seeing God. There's, a, there's physically a throne. Perhaps Isaiah is in the temple. Perhaps he's experiencing some sort of vision. But nonetheless, he clearly sees the embodiment of God sitting on a throne. Uh, the text says here, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Uh, that, that word lofty me is a... Um, it emphasizes action, first of all. It's, it's, a, it's an active sort of uh, word here that emphasizes God's position, his exaltation. And um, again, there are nuanced there. Um, it's interesting. Uh, there's an easy way to remember this. Uh, it's the word NASA, or NASA actually would be how you would say it. And what do you think of NASA? When you think of NASA, you think of things that are lifted up into the heavens, right? So there you go. Now you know a Hebrew word. NASA means lifted up. Um, that's for free. Well, when we were in Florida last week, we, we, uh, the boys and I drove down to the Cape because the Falcon 9 was supposed to go up. We got off the freeway and the phone beeped and said they scrubbed the launch. It was very sad. It went up on Thursday. They were deploying those 60 satellites that Elon Musk think is going to provide internet access to the whole world. So that'll be interesting. Anyway, so NASA lifted up, right? Lofty, high, exalted. The train of his temple... Uh, the train of his robe filled the temple. And when we wonder, where is Isaiah? Is he physically in the temple? That seems likely. Uh, we know throughout the book of Isaiah and in the narrative portions of the Old Testament that go with this time in history that Isaiah often was in the temple. Um, so so you've you got to get this picture in your mind of, you know, Isaiah is likely sitting in the doorway. We learn that later on. And he's, you get the sense that he's, he's just peeking in. And he sees this exalted throne. Now, there's no throne in the actual temple, is there? So whatever he's seeing, 
is is new i mean he, you know you, you walk into kroger how many times right and all of a sudden you walk in and there's this new display and you go oh like walmart can you find anything in walmart these days I mean, they're totally turning the thing upside down you go you know all these years i used to know how to find exactly what i need and now i right it takes me 10 minutes of wandering so isaiah peeks into the temple and he sees new furniture and it's overwhelming god himself is sitting on this high and lifted up exalted throne the the train the uh, the back of his robe is so long it is filling the whole space that the temple floor occupies um, and if that's not enough isaiah immediately notices that god is not alone in his presence we talked last time about the seraphim these these um creatures these angelic creatures that stand uh in this case it tells us they they stood above god and that their their position was held in place not by a platform but by their own self-propelled flight these seraphim uh hovered as it were before god Uh, each of them had six wings two covered his face two covered his feet and with two he flew. Now, uh, how many? The Bible doesn't tell us here how many. There are at least two. Uh, there could have been more. Seraphim just means that it's plural. Seraph is the singular. Seraphim is the plural. Uh, again, where are they? They're stationed above. They have six wings. Uh, talk to me about the significance. We talked about this last time, but why covering the face? Why covering the feet? Covering the face is about not looking upon the holiness of God. Okay. Right. Yeah. So we're thinking like like where Moses sees the burning bush and God tells him to take his sandals off. It's holy ground. So the covering of the feet would signify the holiness of God in terms of geography, and the covering of the face signifies the holy of God, uh, the holiness of God in terms of the gaze. Right. So and both of those things are consistent. Now. What do you think of a holy God who is so other that you have to approach him in a certain way and you can't look at him directly? What else in your life is that true of? What are things that you can't look at directly? You can't approach? The sun. Yeah, the sun. Let's just take the sun for example. Um, what happens if you stare at the sun? Yeah, you burn the code, the cones and rods in your uh, in your eye, right? Uh, right? Um, you disintegrate the mechanics of your eyeball. Wow, that's right. And and that that's one of the pictures we have here that that God is so awesome in His nature and in His person that you can't even look at Him directly without damage, right? Um, so six wings and we get a similar description. We looked at this last time. And if you weren't here last time, uh, three weeks ago, go back to revelation four, eight on your own time. Maybe this afternoon, there's a similar description between revelation four, eight, uh, the creatures there, the four living creatures and the seraphim. Maybe they're the same. Maybe they just are, are similar. They have four different faces. Um, very interesting. And, um, we also get some similarities to Ezekiel 1 and 10, which we tend to think of as cherubim. I think what that shows us 
is that the cherubim and the seraphim were similar but different. The, the cherubim had four wings, two pairs. The seraphim had six wings or three pairs. But nonetheless, th- these, these, are not, these are not the type of creatures that when Halloween rolls around, you want to have your kids dress up like them. I mean, this is like, huh? this, these are overwhelming, overwhelming, awesome, I don't want to be around them kind of creatures. Right, yeah, yeah, that's right. And and that some of the same things we have where they're covering their face as they approach it. Yeah, that's that's uh, uh that's a similarity there. So this is an artist's conception. Remember the word seraph is related to the word burning or fire. So as we think about what they are and what they looked like, it's possible that the reason the Hebrews called them seraphim was because they looked like they were on fire. That's kind of weird, isn't it, Joan? I mean, that's that's just really, really strange. Just, it's like, but my my point in dragging all this out is when you read seraphim were hovering above them, the picture you get in your mind needs to be accurate. These are not cute little, little angels, you know, little, little porcelain angels that appropriately go on your dresser. Uh, These are creatures that you would want to run away from and never see again. And why? Because they, what what do these guys do? They reinforce the total sensory overload of this encounter with God. What are they doing? Look what it says. And one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Other, other other unique 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 set apart set apart set apart he is not like you he is not like you he is not like you and the repetition may be an allusion to the trinity but more specifically emphasizes the weightiness of what they are communicating. It's the way you underline it and highlight it and circled and turned up the volume on what was what was being said. Now notice it doesn't say that they're singing. Sometimes we read this and we think that they're singing back and forth. We have a great hymn, right? Holy, holy, right? And that's great. And and they might have been doing that. But it says they simply called out. The word called out is more heralding it. They're announcing it. They're, they're not singing it like they're happy. They're announcing it like it, there's, there's a proclamation needed. There's, there's news that needs to go out into the nations. And the seraphim call out to one another, the whole earth is full of his kavod, his, his weightiness, his, his depth, his, his heaviness, his overwhelming nature. And you know this, don't you? Where have you seen the glory of God this morning? Do you see the sunrise? What else did you see? Nature? The sky? Everybody breathing okay? He opened our eyes this morning. We, we woke up, right? The, the, the earth revolved one more time. And 
the stars are in their place and the sun's where it needs to be and all the mechanics and magnetics and physics and chemistry and all those things are just in order because God is orchestrating all those things. And the whole earth shouts thousands of ways that He is not like us. He's other. Only God can do that. It gets better. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Hey, you got the picture? So we're looking at these guys. They're calling out to one another about how God is not like you and me. He is other, other, other. He is not like us, not like us. He is pure, pure, sinless, sinless, sinless. And and Isaiah is seeing this. He's hearing it with his ears. The 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 uh, robe is filling the temple and with each word this is amazing with each word that the seraphim declares the whole foundations of the place resonate you think that guy with the lowered truck and the, and the 3000 watt subwoofer in the back of it that going by it on 37 you think he is rocking you know your car when you're pulled up next to him and you can feel the bass this this is unlike any subwoofer sound system you've ever heard isaiah feels this in his bones because the whole temple resonated with the announcement with the proclamation of god's character so he sees it he hears it he feels it and oh by the way the temple is filling with smoke what would you do if this room started filling with smoke right now you would want to run wouldn't you and yet something kept Isaiah captivated on what was happening. Isn't it strange that as we get to know God, there is part of us that is so overwhelmed by the holiness of His presence, we want to run away forever and never see it again. And with that is coupled a strange attraction of wanting to know this God more than I could ever possibly have. Isn't that strange? You remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe where Lewis talked about this? You've got this lion who at the same time is a danger that they want to run from. And at the end of the book, these children are wanting to stroke his mane and sit in his paws. That, Lewis was trying to get at this, this dichotomy of who God is. We are at the same time both repelled by His holiness and attracted to His holiness. You ready for this? That's normal Christianity. That's, that's who God is. He's a danger to run from. And He is an awesome blessing that we want to be close to. At this moment, Isaiah is overwhelmed with the former. For he says, Woe is me. Let's look at his response here. Woe is me, for I... Where are we here? There we go. Okay, Isaiah's response. Okay, here's, here's where we pick it up. I think this is where we left off last time. He says, Woe is me, for I am 
What's your Bible say? Undone. Undone, destroyed. The ESV says doomed. NAS says lost. NLT says ruined. Um, the best Hebrew dictionary I have says doomed in the sense that there is utter destruction about to happen. You're dead, is what Isaiah is saying. I'm about to die. I am destroyed. Now, why would Isaiah say that? Look what he says. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a dead man. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. There's an emphasis here. He says, I myself am a sinful man. I myself live amongst a people that are sinful. Notice the the emphasis on unclean lips. That was a, a well-known Hebrew way of understanding that the lips reveal your heart. Uh, CC alluded to that a moment ago. So what he's saying is, I, I'm utterly sinful to the core. And I'm in the presence of a holy God, which means I, I'm going to die. Isaiah had no, the prophet of God, he doesn't care. There is no qualification in Isaiah's life that, that will keep him from this sentence. Isaiah, Isaiah says, well, this is the end of my life. I'm going to die in the temple because I've seen God and I'm in my sin. Now, can we just, can we just stop and say, is that is that your response when you encounter God in the Scriptures, in worship, in a hymn or a song that's talking about Him, in a sermon? I mean, is, that, is that our response? And if our response is not an initial woe is me sort of response, even in, stay with me, even in Christ... Because that initial woe is me is what causes us to cling to him. Right? You know, Jesus is not like a, a six-day antibiotic treatment where after the sixth day you're fine, right? It, it's, it's something you cling to every day or you're not fine. He says, I'm dead. I'm a dead man. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king. Utter Holiness in the presence of intrinsic sinfulness always yields certain destruction, doesn't it? And then the executioner approaches. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. I can almost guarantee you, Isaiah wasn't thinking, yay, I'm going to get saved today. That's not what he was thinking. He's thinking, here comes the executioner. And I don't know what he's going to do with this coal, but it's going to be bad. Right? Everything in his senses, you notice all his senses are engaged, right? His eyes, his ears, his sight, his feel, the smell of the smoke. Everything is engaged. And Isaiah thinks, this is the day of my death, and here, here, here comes the grim reaper. And this, remember the picture? This awesome, 
fire creature who's flying, who's announcing, who's with every word is shaking the utter threshold. He comes up with these tongs and he gets in Isaiah's personal space. Right? And he's got these tongs and this burning coal in his hand. And he comes up and he gets really, 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 really close, right? And maybe Isaiah closed his eyes and here, here it is, right? And then this angel does something that was completely unexpected. He doesn't slay Isaiah, he touches his lips with it. And the touch of the lips did not burn Isaiah and send him into utter destruction. What happened? It cleansed him. This just got even weirder, didn't it? That that same, listen, that the same holiness that demands destruction because a holy God and an utter sinner are in the same room. That same holiness initiates and motivates cleansing so that God and sinners can be reconciled. You got it? So he comes up, he, he does the unthinkable, he takes this coal... And there's back, we talked about this last time, there's a backdrop to this. And he says, he touches his lips and he says, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is kafar. You gotta, it's not forgiven, it's not cleansed, it's kafar. Like Yom Kippur, like the Day of Atonement, like it's not just I'm wiping your sins away, the, the seraph uses the most loaded word in the whole Old Testament, the most comprehensive word for taking care of your sin. Atonement. He says, this coal has made you clean and right with this God. Isn't that amazing? Now, that was introduction. Watch this. Watch this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Now, God has not spoken thus far, has he? God hasn't said anything yet. The seraphs have proclaimed and announced. This has all been about Isaiah and, and the sort of overwhelming sensory overload experience, the, the shock and awe of being in the presence of God in his sin. He's cleansed. He's forgiven. Atonement has been made. His sin has been handled. Then God speaks. And he says, I have an important roll and I need someone to go this is amazing actually he doesn't say that he says whom shall I send and whom will go for what's the word who's he talking about 
Could be God and the seraphim. Could be. Where do we hear language like that? There's only one other place in the Bible where we hear a plurality of language in this context. Where is it? Genesis chapter 1. God made man in his image, right? In our likeness. So actually this pronoun speaks stronger to the triunity of God than holy, holy, holy does, even though holy, holy, holy may have an echo of the Trinity in it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's interesting in light of where Isaiah's ministry goes. What prophet had the privilege of talking more explicitly about the Messiah than any other prophet? Isaiah did. So you can hear, even though there's a singular God on the throne, God is speaking representatively for the triunity of God, knowing that he needs a prophet who is going to particularly unfold the Messiah's work to his people who so desperately need a savior. So maybe that's why he uses the plural, to emphasize the messianic role that Isaiah is going to particularly talk about in his ministry. Now, be honest. Can you, can you even put yourself in his sandals for a moment to try to imagine what that must have been like? Would you be sticking your hand up going, oh, 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 pick me? I mean, you know, I'd be halfway to Egypt by now if it were me. This, listen, this is what redemption and atonement and forgiveness, and reconciliation, and a changed life does to you and me. When you come to know the Savior, when God works in your life, something changes inside of you so that this danger that God represented in your sin gets transformed into an attraction that you want to serve. You know, like that young child whose dad says, hey, I need to go do this. Oh, dad, can I come with you? Can I do that with you? It's, it's that sort of dynamic. And Isaiah puts his hand... This is the apostles, right? What happened to the apostles on the night that Jesus went to trial? Right? And there's one... There is one apostle of the twelve... At the cross was John. What happens on the day of Pentecost? Who are these guys? They're super preachers. They're going out sharing the gospel. All you see the transformation when a person encounters the living God. There is a transformation of boldness leading to new found service, and that's what we see here with Isaiah. He puts his hand up and he says, "Yes." Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. God says, okay. Watch this. Here's what you're going to do, Isaiah, verse 9. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive their ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, 
and return and be healed. What on earth does that mean? This is the part where you talk. What does that mean? Um, I, I cross-reference there Matthew 13 because in Matthew 13, Jesus explains to the disciples why he speaks in, par- in parables. And you remember the first part of his ministry, he was fairly direct, very, very you know, clear in his teaching. And most of his Galilean ministry, the latter half of his ministry, he spoke in parables. And the disciples said, why, do you, why are you always talking in parables? And he says quoting Isaiah right here that their eyes are blind, their ears are dull, they're hard in their heart. And so I speak in parables, Jesus says, as an act of judgment upon them. What God tells Isaiah here is that the manner in which the word will be received. Isaiah's whole ministry will be received is an act of judgment on a people that does not want to believe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Terry and I don't plan these things, but God does. Terry's starting today in Romans chapter 9, which 9, 10, and 11 in in Romans deal with how Israel fits into the mind and heart of God's plan both in the past and, more importantly, in the future. And that's a part of what we're seeing here, is God is telling Isaiah, here's what you just signed up for. How'd you like a ministry where nobody is convinced by what you're going to say? And this was not unique. That was Jeremiah's experience. That was many of the prophets' experience. Can I ask you, if, if God said, I've got, I've got an all-consuming life ministry for you. Your life will never be the same. It will cost you everything. And oh, by the way, you're going to be 100% ineffective in convincing people. Would you do it? Right? Grant? Yeah, and, and, yeah, and eventually it, it cost him his life in a very significant way, didn't it? That's right. And I think, I think that part of what we're supposed to get out of this is a reminder, listen very clearly, okay, the reminder of what normal ministry looks like. Normal ministry is not, we go down after the church service to the square where all the Memorial Day things are going on and we proclaim Jesus and all of a sudden everyone on the courthouse gets saved. That's not normal ministry. Normal ministry is not we go door to door and every door we talk on, people have a radical conversion. Normal ministry is not that phone call with that adult child that changes them and, and they're, they're, they're totally on, on your page now and they get it and they're going to walk with Christ the rest of their days. Normal ministry is not talking to that coworker, that friend or that family member and in that moment, Everybody comes to faith. Normal ministry is what Jesus said. The way is broad and the way, the gate is wide that leads to destruction and there are many 
who find it. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's that's well said. Yeah. Yeah. In the case of Isaiah here, it's about it's about just being obedient. Yeah. To what that relationship is telling you to do. Right. And yeah. it's not so much it affects outside of us, mm-hmm. but as an essence, it's not. Yeah. It's a, it's about it's about a personal relationship right. where God is calling you and working through you. Right. That's right. Yeah, no, that's very well said. Very well said. And and I think I think that's a, that's a good takeaway from this is that our commission for ministry to share the gospel is really a function of our obedience between God, not a function of the results that we want to see or we might even have. And I put some names there. Moses, Moses and Pharaoh, Jeremiah, I mean, you could take all the prophets in the Bible and call it a study called All the Losers of the Bible. I mean, you could do that. If, we, if we're looking at filling up stadiums and you don't see that. It is. It's about obedience with God, being faithful in what God calls you to do and leaving the results to him. And we need to get, guys, we need that from Isaiah because like you, I get discouraged. And I want to throw in the towel. And I want to give up and say, this is worthless. This isn't working. Let's go, let's go find a new technique. Let's go find a new creative way. To... That's not what this is about. If the prophet of God who literally saw God got this commission, who are we to think that we're going to get anything else? That's the nature of ministry is to simply be obedient. And God tells him ahead of time, let me tell you, you're not going to be received well. Because, listen, many of the prophets were called to a prophetic ministry, even though they were proclaiming the truth, their ministry was really a a ministry of God's judgment upon the people. And the fact that they heard the good news day after day after day, that just heaped up the accountability of the people of God to God's judgment. So Isaiah very naturally says, okay, how long? Like a week of this, God? And then everybody gets saved? How long are they not going to believe God? Look what he says. Verse 11. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate. When the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will be again and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, both of those are trees, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah asked the natural question, how long will this happen? And God says, not for a week, not for a month, but until the whole place is desolate. You will preach and they will not believe until the whole place is utterly destroyed. And yet... Just like when you cut down a tree and the stump remains, there's going to be a remnant. 
and that remnant will make it through my destruction. So you get this little glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned his people. It's not a total and utter judgment that, that the people of God will be annihilated, but the whole place will be destroyed. And yet God will preserve a remnant um, that will make it through the captivity and will see that the seed, notice the emphasis on the holy seed. You remember that, okay? Underline that. And we'll come back to what that holy seed is referring to. We've seen that before. Okay. Yes. Is there a significance to that? Um, not at this point. But we'll see that develop as it goes. Okay, so keep that in mind. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness to us in this chapter. Um, Lord, will you make our view of you greater? and larger and more awesome in our minds that we would live um, in light of who you are. Um, Lord, will you give us boldness and faithfulness in ministry, whether you allow us to see, quote-unquote, success or not. And Lord, I pray that we would um, just walk away from this amazing story with a newfound appreciation and wait for the holiness of your nature and that you call us to be holy like you're holy lord might we might we repent of the casual ways that we deal with you thank you for the gospel that saves us and redeems us as pictured in this coal in our story here thank you that the wrath that isaiah anticipated has been taken care of in christ Will you cause us to walk in awe and in fear and in amazement of who you are, uh, never treating you in a casual, um, careless way, but always remembering as, as amazing as our access is to you in Christ, that you remain the holy and awesome God of the universe. Lord, thank you that we can know you in that way. In Christ's name, amen.